Now, I've been a pastor for a long, long time, uh, almost 36 years. I started when I was 24 years old. And that means that over 36 years, I have done a lot of weddings. I do not do weddings anymore. Uh, And it's not because I'm so busy, and it's not even because I'm that important. It's just because, well, let me show you why. It's because I've, I've seen this way too many times in my life. That's funny, I don't care who you are right there. See, I've seen way too many white people have too much wine and get out on the dance floor and do stuff like that. So I just decided to save my sanity. I wasn't going to do any more weddings. But when I was performing weddings back in the day, it occurred to me that there are a lot... By the way, Laura was in the background of that video. No comment whatsoever, okay? There are a lot of similarities between the Christian life and Christian marriage. For example, both begin with an expression of trust in another person. Both began a whole new way of life. Both were designed by God to last forever. Both were designed to get better and better and better. But let's be honest, usually neither does. In fact, marriage has reached the point in our society, if you happen to be happy in your marriage, you are the exception. We can probably count on two hands the number of couples in our sphere of relationships that we would consider to be happily married. And I understand that when you get married, you're going to go through tough times. That's why we have vows like better or worse, rich or poor, sickness and health. We know that because we know that things like illness can invade your marriage, financial setbacks, good gracious, kids, right? But marriage was designed by God to get better and better and better. Unfortunately, that's usually not the case. But I think what's even more depressing is the fact that the life of a Christian was designed to start at a high point and go higher And I understand that just like marriage, there are going to be some highs and there are going to be some lows. That's to be expected. But you got to understand as a Christian, you should be happier today than you were when you first made the decision to follow Jesus Christ. Think about it. You've been forgiven of all your sins. As we've seen in this series, Meet the Gospel, you have been declared righteous. In other words, you have been put back into a right standing before God. You go a few chapters later in the book of Romans, and Paul makes this comment in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation between you and God. I mean, that's pretty cool. On top of that, you've learned more. You've begun to grow. God is transforming your life. Hopefully, you've made some Christian friends. You've probably connected in some kind of Christian community. You've learned all kinds of biblical truths and precepts and principles that you can grab onto that can help you navigate life. But unfortunately for a lot of us, the longer we're Christians, instead of our life getting better and better and better, it seems that we become more and more miserable. And that bothers me because I'm going to spend eternity with you. And I don't want to spend eternity with a bunch of party poopers. So here's, here's the big question this weekend. Where's the smile? Where's the joy? And I'm not talking about the phony stuff, you know. I'm not talking about the TV evangelist with the fake grin. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. I'm not talking about living with an attitude where you keep telling yourself every day, life is getting better and better and better. You try to sell yourself, life is getting better and better. That's just stupid. Life is not getting better and better and better. Have you checked out the news lately? It is not gonna get better. We've seen in this series because of that downward vortex of sin in humanity, life is not gonna get better and better and better. And I think one of the biggest challenges we have as Christians, we think that when we become Christians, that life's gonna get better and we want to experience heaven on earth right now. And when it doesn't feel like heaven, we are totally blown away and disillusioned. Jesus never promised that. In fact, if you read the gospels, if you read the New Testament, Jesus basically said, suffering, that's what you're gonna experience, persecution, tests, trials, tough times in life. So I'm not talking about an attitude that says, Life is getting better and better and better. I'm talking about living with an attitude that says Jesus is getting better and better and better, even though life is not getting better and better and better.
Now this weekend, we're wrapping up our series, Meet the Gospel. We've been basing it on the first five chapters of the book of Romans. And if you've been here with us through this series, uh, Paul has introduced us to the gospel. He's, he's introduced us to our need uh, because of the depravity in our life. And so he spent a lot of time, especially last weekend, talking about that time when we are justified by faith. That moment of salvation when God transfers his righteousness from his account to our lives. So we looked at that, but when you get to chapter five, all of a sudden Paul takes us from that moment of salvation and he sends us into this new world, this new life that we have in Jesus. And he shows us the beginning of a whole new experience. And when you get to chapter five, the constant reminder, the constant theme is joy. And if you've lost your joy, maybe you'll figure out why this weekend, but maybe even more importantly, you'll discover how you can get it back. If you have your Bibles this week in Romans chapter five, if you don't have your Bibles, we'll put the verses up on the screens. But let me just begin by giving you three general observations about Romans chapter five. Here's the first one. Paul looks in three directions in this chapter. He looks past, he looks in the present, and he looks into the future. For example, verse one, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that's your moment of salvation, okay? For some of you, maybe it was last week. For some of you, it was last year. Maybe it was five years ago. For me, it was 1961. But it's that moment when we accept God's free gift of salvation made possible through what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, once and for all, paying for our sins. It's that moment that you respond to the gospel. Paul says, that's the past. And then he says this in verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have... And he's talking about the present. He's saying right now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which we now stand. So he's talking about the presence. In other words, once we've been saved, once we've been justified, once God declares us righteous and we're put into a right standing with God, Paul says, I want you to understand there are some benefits to this new relationship. There are things like peace, things like grace that are now ours to claim as Christians. They're now ours to experience. And then he says in verse nine, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So he looks into the future. He says, we have been justified. We now have grace. We now have peace. We will be saved from God's wrath thanks to Jesus. So Paul looks in three directions. Here's the second observation. Romans 5 gives us three, three benefits that are ours to claim right now. If you're a Christian, you can claim these things right now. Here's the first benefit, verse 1. We have peace with God. And if you could read it in the Greek, it says, we continue to have peace with God. By the way, we do not have to pray for peace with God. If you are a Christian, you have peace with God. You didn't have it before. You see, before Jesus we were strangers to peace. But once we are introduced to the gospel, once we respond to the free gift of salvation, we have that peace. And it's that peace we just think about. Just sometimes it is just so undeniable when we're going through the storms of life, we can hardly put it into words. We can hardly speak. But this is the reality. Some of you are here this weekend because you've been on a journey trying to find peace and you can't find peace. I mean, you've tried everything. You got an education. You thought that would bring you some kind of peace. It didn't work. You tried to make a lot of money. You thought, man, if I have a lot of money, I'll be at peace. You're not at peace. You tried to build a career. Maybe you got married. Some of you said, if we have kids, I could have told you that wasn't going to work. You know. <laughs> you try sex, drugs, alcohol, rock and roll. You've tried it all. But I want, this is what I want you to understand. And I'm not speaking to you as a pastor. I'm speaking you, to you as a friend. If you never respond to the gospel, 
If you never accept God's free gift of salvation that's been made possible because of what Jesus Christ did on your behalf, I want you to understand, you can search all you want to, but you will die without peace. But Paul says, if you're a Christian, you have peace and you have it right now. We get the second benefit from verse two. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So Paul says, not only do you have peace with God, you also, for the first time in your life, you've gotten to experience grace. You ever seen Alice in Wonderland? I think they just remade it. A lot of drugs in the background of that movie. I can tell you right now, come up with that idea. But if you've seen it, you know, it talks about Alice and she falls down that rabbit hole. And then she's introduced to this land she's never experienced before. And once she's given access, she discovers just how wonderful this land is. See, it's the same way with us. As Christians, we have been given entrance to the land of grace. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, understand, we didn't have it before Jesus, but we have it now. In other words, we have access to God because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Since he paid the penalty once for all, our past sin, present sin, future sin, we can go to him directly. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we get to cry out, Abba, Father. We get to refer to him as, as Daddy. See, before we had grace... You lived under the condemnation of the law. It was the old covenant. And the only way you got to God was through the these, the thou shalt not, thou shalt, and the thou shalt not, and you got to do this and don't do that. And you had to make sacrifices. See, when you got up under the law every morning, this is what the law said to you. You're a loser. You're a sinner. You can't have a relationship with God. You know what you need? You need to go get an animal. You need to go have a priest sacrifice that animal on your behalf so your sins can be forgiven. By the way, don't you know Peter would have had a heyday? Back, back in the Old Testament when they were sacrificing all those animals, right? But here's the problem. By the time you went to bed that night, you were guilty again. You were a sinner again. You were a loser again. And you had to go through this cycle day after day after day. But Paul says, it's not like that anymore. Now we have grace. Now we have access to God based on what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. He says, that is your spiritual heritage to claim. The third benefit is also in verse 2. He says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It literally means we jump for joy. We jump for joy. And Paul camps out on this thought for a while. And and that leads to our third observation. Romans 5 talks about three levels of rejoicing. You can see in verse 2, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, not only so, we rejoice in our sufferings. Verse 11, not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want us to talk about these three levels of rejoicing. They all three build on one another. The first one is in verse two. Paul says this, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. How cliche does that sound? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I can't tell you how many times in my Christian life I've said that. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We don't have a clue what we're talking about, do we? What does that even mean? Well, let me give you an idea. When you think of the glory of God, think of it this way. It's the likeness of God. In other words, God's glory is what he is in character. God's glory is what he is in power. It's what he is in appearance. That is the glory of God. But understand, when Jesus Christ came to this earth and he lived among us, right, he was the manifestation of God's glory. What did John say in John chapter one? He dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. He was the manifestation of God's glory. This is what Paul is saying here. When he talks about, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Our hope as Christians comes from knowing that God is in the process of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. 
God is in the process of developing Jesus' character in our lives. Now, as I said last week, positionally, we are seen from God's perspective as being perfect. But in our day-to-day experience, we're down here. And part of the Christian journey, you know, loving people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. When we talk about that, we're talking about being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, this is what you have to understand. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, God took you on as a project. How would you like to take yourself on as a project, right? By the way, how many have unfinished projects around the house? Just raise your hand. Let's be honest. That's embarrassing. Let's put his hands back down. See. And you know where they tend to end up? In the garage. And we just kind of stack them up until we go in and they fall over on us. And we're like, wow, I forgot about that. I got to finish that project, right? This is what I want you to understand. God never forgets his project. Once he takes you on as a project, he never forgets you. This is, what, this is what Paul said to a little church in Philippi, Philippians chapter one, verse six. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, he who took you on as a project, will carry it on to completion. God never forgets his projects. Now here's the problem. Sometimes on our Christian journey, we feel forgotten, don't we? Sometimes we feel like God stuck us in the garage or put us up on a shelf. And, you know, and, and I think we've all had that feeling. We've all had that feeling. You look around and think, wow, God's using everybody except me. But this verse says that we can rejoice in the fact that God never forgets his project. But this is why you got to understand. Sometimes part of the project is when God puts you in the garage or puts you on the shelf. That's part of the process. In other words, part of God's working in our lives is sometimes taking us out of the game, sometimes putting us on the sidelines, setting us aside because there are certain things that he wants, to, he wants to cultivate in our lives, certain qualities that are lacking. And what gives us hope during those times is remembering that God doesn't forget us, that God is at work in our lives, even when we don't see what God is doing, even when we don't understand what he's up to. Great verse, Romans chapter eight, verse 28. You've been around church for a while, you've heard this. And we know that in all things, All things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And when you have that hope that God is working for your good because you love him, see, there's this incredible sense of calm, joy, peace, regardless of what's going on around you. But it all starts when you're committed, you make that commitment. God, I am not gonna fight you. I'm gonna work hand in hand and I'm gonna surrender to what you wanna do in my life. That's the first step of rejoicing in hope. Verse three, not not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. And and we hear that and we immediately think, you know, (laughs) it's one thing to rejoice in hope. I'll buy that. But it doesn't make any sense to rejoice when you're suffering. Only an idiot would rejoice when he's suffering. But God says, listen, when I bring suffering into your life, when I allow suffering into your life, I expect you to rejoice. Now, here's the big question. How do you do that? You know, I mean, maybe you're sitting here this morning and this is the week that your spouse walked out on you, deserted you, and told you in no uncertain terms they no longer had any room in their life for you. How do you rejoice in that? Or that marriage that you stood before the minister and said, till death do us part, it's crumbling right beneath you. How do you rejoice in that? Or maybe you have a kid that's gone prodigal. In fact, you sit here today, you don't even know where they are. How do you rejoice in that? Or you just got a report from a doctor. Or maybe you recently lost a loved one. How do you find, how do you, how do you rejoice in that? Well, verse three says, 
It's by knowing something. We have to know something. We also rejoice in our suffering because we know. In other words, when suffering invades our life, we're to know something, remember something. We're to put something in perspective. And what we're to put in perspective is that our suffering is a means toward a very productive end. God does not waste tough times. He's up to something. A few years ago, I think it was my second trip, Carl and I were in the Central African Republic, and that's when we were raising money, literally millions of dollars, and drilling wells throughout that country and starting churches. But one day, Jim said, hey, today I want to take you out to Biberati. We were in the capital, Bangui. And uh, he said, that's where my headquarters are. That's where all my crews work from that go out. He had hired all these nationals and trained them, Central Africans, and they, they did all the work throughout the, throughout the country. And he said, I want us to go out there and visit the headquarters. I said, that's cool. How far is it? He said, it's about 90 miles. I'm like, be there in an hour and a half, right? 14 hours, 14 hours later, we finally arrived. I'm telling you, we went through potholes that were bigger than our Jeep. We got to bridges that we thought we would be able to cross. We couldn't cross. They were washed out. We had to find ways to get across the river. I'm telling you, for 14 hours, we bumped, we hit our head on the roof, we hit our head on the wind. I had never been so exhausted in my horrible ride. But here's the thing. The next year when I went back and Jim said, we're going out to Biberati, it really wasn't that big a deal because I knew exactly what to expect. In the same way, if I know that the road that gets me to God's ultimate destination in my life, if I know ahead of time it's gonna be a rough road, then understand every jolt and every bump along the way reminds me that I'm on the right course. I think this is what God wants us to hear today. God wants us to hear, I have your good at heart. God wants us to know, hey, my reputation is at stake. I know where you're going. I know where I'm taking you. You don't know, but I know. And God says, in my plan for your life, you just need to know ahead of time. There are going to be some deep, dark valleys. There are going to be some pumps. There are going to be some potholes. There are going to be some washed out bridges. In fact, there are going to be some experiences that are going to defy logic. I'm going to take you through times where I'm going to stretch you. Do you think that you are going to snap. And you know what? Some of you, you're in one of those times right now. It absolutely defies logic. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your finances. Last weekend, a couple walked up to me. They were new to hope. They said they'd never met me. The father walked up and shook my hand, said, thank you for what you do. We're going to need your help right now. I said, what's going on? He says, our 23-year-old son just took his life. And we have no idea why. Defies logic, right? But when you go through those times, we have to keep in mind that it's part of the work of suffering that is building qualities in our life that from God's perspective, nothing else can build. Paul even tells us what those qualities are beginning in verse three. He says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces Perseverance. See the word perseverance there? The Greek word means to abide under and be steady. It's this idea of being loaded down with a burden, but even with that heavy burden, you're able to be stable. In fact, we get our English word stability from this Greek word. In other words, Paul says this. When suffering invades our lives, we survive it, we grow through it. What happens is we develop stability, the ability to abide under, to be steady under the pressure. But see, this is why we have to understand. We will resent what God is doing in our lives if we don't realize that it's for our good. If we can't somehow keep that perspective. 
I'm a little bit of a history buff, and someone gave me a book. In fact, I showed it last night, but I was afraid somebody's going to want to borrow it. The Complete Works of Michelangelo. And it's kind of the history of Michelangelo. He was a nut job. You guys do know that, right? I mean, he was a genius, but he was a nut job. And most geniuses are. And uh, sorry if you're a genius. But uh, say I'm not. I was a PE major. I don't have to worry about that. But um, it's interesting because it would talk about how the people, especially the people of Florence, they got so frustrated with him because he would demand this big slab of marble. And they would go find it. And they would cut it. And they would, they would have to transport it and all this energy. And it was massive. And Michelangelo would go to work. And, you know, they would bring in this big slab. And before you know it, only 90% of it was left. Then 80%. Then 50%. Then 30%. And Michelangelo truly believed that he could look at a slab of marble and he could see the image. And this is what he would say to the people. You got to understand, as the chips fall, the image emerges. You got to keep the perspective. And I think in the same way, you and I, we have to be able to maintain the perspective. God, I don't like this. And God, this is painful. God, I would not wish this on my worst enemy, but God, this is where I have hope. I know, I know that you're using this to lead me to a destination that I would never get to otherwise. I know as painful as as this is, you are using this to transform me into a masterpiece. And I accept the fact that as the chips fall, the image that you desire is going to emerge. And then it says in verse three, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that our suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, look, character. Perseverance leads to character, which is a great word. It's the word we use in the English language uh, for silver when we add the adjective sterling. It's this idea of getting rid of all the impurities, pushing aside all of the waste, all of the alloys, so the pure silver can rise to the top. The word literally means in the Greek, being proven after the test. Being proven after the test. Character, being proven after the test. I think another word would be reliability. So Paul says, understand, suffering is going to come into your life. If you, if you get through it, it's going to bring stability. And then once you become stable, that's going to lead to reliability. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 3, not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance is going to lead to character. Now notice this, character is going to lead back to hope. In other words, in this cycle of suffering, you are brought back to the reality that God is at work on my character. He is at work on my character. And that's what gives me hope to go on. That's what gives you hope to continue. In fact, you're encouraged to rejoice because you understand as painful as the process is, it's just part of the process. Now, all of a sudden you get to verse five and Paul introduces us to two truths uh, that he hasn't introduced anywhere else in the book of Romans. Paul introduces us to the love of God and he introduces us to the spirit of God. Neither one have been mentioned up to this point. We've read about the wrath of God. We've read about the power of God. We've certainly read about the righteousness of God. We haven't read anything about the love of God or the spirit of God. But notice what it says in verse five. And hope does not put us to shame. I, the, the real word is disappoint. I think sometimes these translators, they just mess things up. Literally what it says, hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What's Paul telling us here? He's saying when we go through tough times, the Spirit of God who takes up residence in our lives at the moment of salvation, the Spirit of God is there to remind us that it's motivated by love. Now, let me tell you why that's so important. I've done a lot of counseling over these years. People who get their butts handed to them when they're going through tough times, 
People who crash and crumble when they're going through tough times are people who question God's love. But if you know that it's a loving God who is behind the suffering, so you're better able to handle it, you're better able to develop maturity, which is gonna lead to stability and reliability. You're you're better able to get the perspective and rejoice in the process. Full cycle. Now, when you get to verses six through 10, these are verses that are usually used for evangelism, but you know what? They actually have to do with suffering. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Paul is going to show us that God loves us so much. God is so head over heels in love with us. He cannot do anything in our lives other than that which is in our best interest. That's how much God loves us. And he illustrates it by showing us how much Jesus loved us before we were even saved. We saw this last week, verse six. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we saw that last week, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Remember propitiation? How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through this life? What does that mean? Shall we be saved through this life? What Paul's saying is this. Jesus' death saves us from our sins. That's the gospel. But the continued work of Jesus Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit, I love this, saves us from ourselves. Saves us from our tendency to fight back against God and what he's trying to accomplish in our lives. Now, just so you know, uh, I am a lot better at teaching this stuff than I am actually living this stuff. In fact, I wish I could do about half of what I tell you you should do. If I could just do half, that would be great. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm no different than you. So I'm gonna come clean. I'm getting ready to go on my little study break, so I'll just, just get it out there. This past year has been a tough one. Um, I, I feel like God has just beat me like a redheaded stepchild this year. I mean, just every aspect of, of life. And through that process... I think I've lost my way, and uh, I, I certainly lost my joy. And a lot of you picked up on it because you would send me emails or you would catch me in the atrium. Hey, I don't know what's going on, but I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. And I think it goes back to uh, you guys remember in January, uh, Laura was asked to, to move in for retirement, and and that probably doesn't sound like a big deal to you guys. In fact, most people are like, "Wow, moving to retirement—that's so cool, right?" Well, we had done this together for 33 years. I mean, we were like Siamese twins, and inseparable in a lot of ways. And I didn't feel like we were surgically removed. <laughs> I felt like rip, it was ripped apart, right? And uh, I didn't know how to deal with that. I, I went into a grieving process without a doubt. I, uh, for a few weeks, I, I could not even walk down the hallway where Laura's office had been. I couldn't do it. I had to go another way to my office because I didn't know how to process that. I just felt like half of me, half of me was just gone. And that was tough. It was, it was a grieving, a grieving process. And in fact, I, I think I went through, I called it survivor's remorse because I would try to leave the house in the morning before Laura got up because I didn't want to have to look her in the eyes and say bye. So I'd be cowardly and I'd sneak out. So I wouldn't even have to deal with that. And then, you know, I, at the end of the day, I'm a pretty private person and, and I, I try, try not to, to bother you guys with a lot of stuff. In fact, I'm so private, I actually had to call my parents and share this with them. Uh, before I shared it this weekend, and my sister heard it the first time last night when she was sitting in church. 
But shortly after that, based on some blood work that came up from a physical, uh, the doctors introduced me to the word cancer for the very first time. And it's just amazing. Uh, it, it, it just, what it does to you here. And, and you know, I, I think, like I said, God doesn't waste tough times. But um, I was already at such a low point. I remember one night, Laura said, honey, you don't say much about this. And we're still going through the tests and stuff. What do you think? I said, man, I hope God takes me. Some advice, men. Don't, that's not what your wife wants to hear. Okay, just, just so you know, I'll save you that, okay? But that led to a conversation. What I realized is, yeah, me going to heaven, that's a great deal. Absent with the body, present with the Lord. But not such a great deal with, for Laura because like, for the, like, I used to think Laura, she's so strong and independent that, hey, if I died, Laura would have my funeral at 10 the next day, be back at her desk by 12 and have a dinner date. She, life would just go on. She's that kind of woman, right? And then I thought, uh-oh, I forgot. She didn't have a career anymore. She didn't have a job anymore. What is she gonna do? I, I, I gotta find her a husband. You know, that's what men do. We fix things, right? <laughs> I even came up with a list. He's gotta be rich, <laughs> short, <laughs> ugly as dirt, and toothpick arms, see? I don't want her to like him. I just want him to have a lot of money to take care of her, right? <laughs> and uh, I know somebody was telling me one night, said, a couple of your sermons I've heard before. He said, yep. Because I was, I was just in a place where I was digging into resources, trying to get up here and do my job every week. And then the third part was this, the financial stress of trying to lead this place, man. I'm telling you, I, I have a, God's given me a big dream and big vision for the world, and you unfortunately are part of it. And uh, so I, 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 get, I, get, I was getting weighed down by the financial stuff and uh, feel like, well, I'm, I'm the only one that's committed. You know, nobody loves Jesus anymore, you know, and nobody wants to serve, nobody wants to give. And somebody told me one time, you gotta trust God. I'm like, I trust God. I don't trust those people. That's who I don't trust. I don't trust that the money God's putting in their bank account, they know what to do with it. That's what I don't trust. You know, I think they'd rather buy boats and beach houses than, than help me reach the triangle and change the world. But uh, it wore me down. It wore me down. And I think uh, it, it came to a head one day when Laura asked me as I was leaving how she could pray for me. And I said, you can't, I'm done. I was just right at that point, I'm just figuring out my exit strategy to have as little trauma on hope as possible. But I, I was like Elijah in the cave. Remember Elijah after he slew the 800 prophets of Baal and then the old huzzy Jezebel, Jezebel said, I'll kill you. And he went and hid in the cave. Uh, I was in a cave. Remember, but, but God came to Elijah. It's like, why are you here? What are you doing in here? Have, haven't I been faithful, you know? But see, that, that's the problem so often in our lives when we go through tough times. We focus on ourselves, the pain, the disappointments, but God's just, just focusing on the project. By the way, I, it's, we still haven't determined whether I have cancer or not. We have determined that if I do, the doctor tells me it's not aggressive or life-threatening. We're trying to figure those things out. And uh, that's, take that for what it's worth. But, you know, we look on what's the t tough stuff, you know, the, the loss, and we feel like God's punishing us. But see, God's perspective is like, no, no. I'm just creating value, worth. 
chips fall, eventually damage. It'll be a masterpiece. So I've learned three things on my little bit of a journey uh, that I want to share with you if you find yourself in a similar situation this weekend. Here's the first one. The key to a joyful life is having the right focus. And I'm horrible at this, but I can teach it. I mean, if you focus on the pain, this is what I'm telling you. If you focus on the pain, the suffering, the inconvenience, you will miss the masterpiece that God is creating. And you will be just like me. You will be stressed. You will be angry. You will be bitter. You will be depressed. The key to a joyful life is having the right focus. Here's the second one. Having the right focus leads to having the right attitude. But let me just say this. If you want the right focus, then just start today. Because this is what I realized. It's a choice. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. I will warn you ahead of time. It will require a teachable spirit. And it will require an attitude that says, hey, God, I'm grateful for whatever you do in my life. Because at the end of the day, I know it's from you. That's what I mean by having the right attitude. And then here's the third. Uh, Having the right attitude leads to unquenchable optimism. I'm not there yet. I'm heading there, I think. I think getting away from you for a few weeks will help. I'm going to lie to you. I love you, but I want to get away from you for a while. Um, But it will lead to unquenchable optimism. Here's the thing. The most contagious person in the world ought to be a Christian. If anybody ought to want to be around anybody, it ought to be a Christian. We have the answer to life now. Not only that, we have the answer to life after death. What do we got not to be joyful about? I told you I was a history buff. Remember, the first Brexit was in 1600 when the English people left and came over here, right? Settled at Jamestown, 1607. Three years, they tried everything they could to to establish that settlement. Burned to the ground twice. Went through a horrible drought, famine. They went from 500 to 60 people. And they thought, we gone. We're going back to England. They got in their boat on the James River. No wind. Couldn't go anywhere. Sat around on that boat for two days. Finally, some wind came up. They started making their way down to the James River. They get to the mouth of the James River where the Chesapeake Bay is. They can't get out because there are three ships coming from England, captained by a guy named Lloyd Delaware. He brought people and supplies and animals, return of hopes and dreams. They got off the boat, dug in their hills, and here we are today. Now, I tell you that little story because some of you, uh, some of you, you've lost hope, right? And you're just kind of drifting around the harbor aimlessly. And I think this is what God would want you to hear today. Get out of the boat. What are you doing in this boat? Get back on the shore. Recommit. Dig in your heels. Trust me. I'm creating a masterpiece. You don't know what I'm doing. I know exactly. I know exactly what I'm doing. Trust me. I'll tell you, if you can get there, If you can get there, if you can get there, your joy will follow. So let me just ask you on a scale of one to 10, 10 being highest as a Christian, where's your joy? Now here's the follow-up question. So what are you gonna do about it? What are you gonna do about it? Let's pray together. Father, you're an awesome God. 
And you're faithful, God. And if we're honest, we look back in our lives, we can see it every step of the way. But sometimes we get blindsided. Sometimes we, get, we lose our way. Sometimes we get a case of ingrown eyeballs and all we can see is what's going on in our own lives. My guess is I'm surrounded by thousands of people at all of our campuses this weekend, right now, who can identify with that. And I pray that you would challenge us to get out of the boat, to confess our lack of faith, to place our trust back in the only person that can bring us hope, and to start moving again in the right direction. Father, I know this isn't an easy message for any of us, but it's a needed message. And thank you, thank you that it's a message that Paul was willing to deliver in Romans chapter five. In your name we pray, amen.